0: You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Everyone needs free law CE. CE Impact is offering a live webinar with David Brushwood on April 1st at 7 p.m. Central. The topic of this webinar is patients' access to unapproved drugs. We all know that the FDA has recently indicated they plan to terminate its unapproved drug initiative. So make sure you're ready for how this termination will impact your patients and your practice. RCE is accredited for both pharmacists and pharmacy technician, and it's free. Check out the show notes and use the link to register today. Remember, April 1st, 7 p.m. Central. to another edition of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Uh, welcome, and uh, hopefully things where you're going are doing pretty good. Um, we're uh, getting a bit of a breather here from, from the pandemic, and I'm very, very grateful, and hof- hopefully that will, will, will keep going uh, as our vaccination rates continue. So uh, we're going to continue our streak today of not talking about COVID. Uh, I don't know how long, much longer that'll last, but we're going to keep doing it. Uh, and actually today, we're going to talk about the brand new American gastroenterology Association guidelines for the management of variceal bleeding, so another uh, a topic that's a little more for inpatient pharmacists and inpatient practitioners, uh, but it's something I deal with a lot and uh, see quite a bit, and uh, there are a couple of really interesting points that I think uh, clinicians who work in this area will be very interested in, uh, certainly some best practices that uh, I see that are not followed um, in my institution, and and I hope uh, uh, you know I can convince the powers that be that, 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 that there are some better ways maybe to handle things based on these guidelines. So uh, something we'll be talking about uh, here coming up before we do though, as always want to thank you for listening, head over to where uh, you get your podcast. If you haven't liked us, please do. If you haven't subscribed us, do the same. And most importantly, head over to our producer CE impact, where you can sign up for some excellent CE and actually get credit for, for, for this uh, listening to this podcast in a very, very simple way. Sign up very reasonable price. Head over after you listen to me, answer one question, fill out, the paperwork, and you've got yourself in half an hour of CE. Uh, I can't think of an easier way to get CE, really. So, uh, for the pharmacist out there, I think this is a, a, a pretty easy and pretty uh, cost-effective way to do so. So, uh, thank you again for listening. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so we are going to turn our attention to the uh, published in preprint, and so here we here we go again with things that have been been uh, not officially like in paper paper, but but uh, it certainly uh, is not is an on the website um, as a, a basically a preprint proof. Uh, so, so don't, don't look, don't head over to that, to the AGA website and think you're going to see it right, right on the front page. You're going to have to kind of do a little digging, but it is brand new and it's supposed to be out here in the next couple of weeks. So, um, for those of you who work in patient medicine, um, I'm sure all of you have a story to tell. I certainly have seen several cases in my life where you've had a patient with very bad cirrhosis who comes in, has been, you know, uh, uh vomiting blood or, you know, you know, coughing up blood, things along those lines, uh, they're, they're. They enter the emergency department. They're kind of shocky. They they're they're pale. They're sweaty. Uh, they they do stat labs. Their hemoglobin's low. Their uh, their blood pressure is low. And then in, in one in one split second, they basically vomit up their entire blood supply onto the floor of the emergency department and die right in front of you and I've seen that happen a couple of times in my career where they're, you know, they're hanging on one minute, and then they just basically, you know, uh, uh, exanguate in front of your eyes, and that's kind of the end of it, and so uh, this is a very severe uh, life-threatening issue when it occurs, Um, and it occurs uh, uh, different than traditional GI bleeds, so I think we're all kind of aware of, you know, GI bleeds that occur because somebody has got H. pylori or because they've taken too many non-steroidals. This type of bleeding Variceal bleeding due to, to portal hypertension, uh, which is almost always due to chronic liver disease, uh, is, is not is something completely different, right? And, and the way I try to explain to my students when I teach this in class is that is that the the way, the reason that these varices occur in, in both in the stomach and in the small intestine is because of increased portal pressure. So remember that when you have cirrhosis of the liver, your liver is turned from a nice, healthy uh, uh organ that does a whole bunch of things in your body to essentially a slab of rock in the middle of middle of your of your abdominal cavity that isn't able to do much of anything most of the tissue has been been fibrosed or scarred over and you've got blood because of course one of the big things the liver does is 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 uh, uh detoxify blood products so some of the biggest arteries and veins in the body go right through the liver and so you've got this high level of pressure because the blood is having a harder and harder time making it through this the these, the sclerosed and 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 fibrotic pieces of liver that pressure then kind of gets transmitted backwards from the liver up through the gi tract so backwards through the small intestine through the to the the stomach and up to the large intestine and that's called portal pressures it's much more complex than that obviously but i but that's i think that's that that's kind of a, a an easy way for me to kind of visualize it i was going kind to of think of you know water behind a a, a a dam that's that's kind of building up and the pressure is building up behind the dam and that pressure gets transmitted backwards um and in this case that pressure uh, leads to to uh a blood-filled uh, uh, veins or varices that are lining out throughout throughout your your stomach and and your and your esophagus, and they can burst. And when they do burst, they are full of blood, and and basically uh, uh, you get you get extreme uh, uh, high level of bleeding in these patients, which as I've said before, can absolutely be life-threatening. Um, uh, hemorrhage from uh, from variceal bleeding uh, has a fairly high uh, mortality rate, and and some studies have suggested as high as forty percent at three years after their first. Um, uh, some of have, have been lower, things like that. Uh, so, so the bottom line is it's it, it's it's one of the most serious uh, um, outcroppings of cirrhosis of the liver and chronic liver disease, and it's something that our GI docs uh, deal with. We deal with quite a bit. So. Uh, these guidelines uh, from the American Gastroenterological Association that have again are in preprint have just come out um, are, are set up as guidelines as you usually would expect. It's it's a multidisciplinary discussion where they've looked at endoscopists, gastroenterologists, uh, uh, hematologists, radiologists, uh, things along those lines. They brought all these people together. Uh, they did have kind of the the. Um, uh, the the uh, nice uh, grading system where they 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 had the grade system where they would ask specific questions, use a PICO system for for answering each other's questions, and then basically have a statement. Um, uh, based on each of those questions, whether you either recommend strongly recommend or don't recommend a therapy or an, or a non therapy, and the way these guidelines, because they're written really for gastroenterologists, are kind of divided up into is for you know uh, invasive in treatment of of uh, varices versus medical treatment. Now, as a pharmacist, I'm going to lean way more toward the medical treatment, but it is worth mentioning that um, you've got uh, uh, an extensive. Um, a set of guidelines uh, and recommendations for Endoscopic and and other types of treatment for these patients, and of course that is the primary treatment, right? If somebody does have a variceal bleed, uh, this is where the gastroenterologist uh, gets to go down and 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 try and find the bleed and either band it off, and that's usually what they do is they'll they'll take bands and literally try and band the 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 varicea, uh, flat, flat, uh, or they'll they'll uh, use various and sundry types of chemicals to cauterize the 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 the, the, the spurting uh, Um Certainly, you know, as you might imagine, uh, most people would agree that it's probably better to, to, to get at these patients before they're bleeding all over the place in the emergency department. And so uh, when patients have known varices, uh, they will often will ha- be preemptively treated endoscopically where they'll have bands placed. If they find a, a bulging varicea, they'll, they'll just go ahead and place a band right there and then so it never does burst open, which is, of course, really what you want. Um, but that obviously doesn't always work, and we don't always catch patients before they develop varices. And so you will see this, uh, as I said, in, 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 in critical uh, care units and and I and uh, emergency departments uh, throughout the United States, really. So, so I won't belabor uh, uh, much of the of the the discussion in the guidelines talking about about endoscopic treatment. Just that that you know, it talks about the different types of endoscopic treatment in patients who have multiple. Uh, um, uh, uh, variceal bleeding episodes it is possible to try and reduce portal pressures by placing what's called a tips shunt that basically uh, shunts uh, uh, some of the fluid or basically around the the, the the low the areas of high pressure it has its own issues uh, that are way beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about today but that, it basically talks mostly about those kind of things so we're going to focus though today on on the medical management so you know as a pharmacist um, or when i'm working with my my non-gi physician. How do we approach these patients when when they hit the door? Um, obviously, many of them are going to be hypotensive because they're basically in in, in hemorrhagic shock um, because they've they've basically thrown up a significant amount of, of of their blood supply. So certainly, a very very first thing is is uh, uh, trying to get their their fluids up, and so assessing the circulatory circulatory status and then giving you know blood products and giving fluids to try and maintain blood pressure is absolutely the first critical thing you're going to do. Um, the guidelines, don't call out a crystalloid versus colloid. It's worth noting that these patients are almost certainly going to get uh, packed red blood cells, which is in and of itself a colloid, right? So it's a, it, it will actually work as a colloid uh, to to, to uh, be a volume expander in in, in, in the uh, intervascular space. So that's uh, something that's that's first and foremost. They do recommend that uh, if you have a critically ill patient that, that intubating the patient is advised that the patient is actively throwing up, they have an inability to pay, maintain their airway, and that you need to provide optimal sedation to complete endoscopic uh, examination or therapy, um, again, that's something that my pulmonologists are, are going to uh, uh, going to uh, uh, approach uh, very gingerly. But that's definitely where their their uh, uh, skill comes into play, uh, being able to to successfully uh, intubate these patients. And then we bef- either before they go to endoscopy, depending on on how emergent this is, or immediately after the endoscopy is where we start to get into drugs. And uh, the 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 primary medication we want to use in these is, is vasoactive drugs that basically are are, are going to uh, cause vasoconstriction, and 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 basically we want uh, vasoconstriction mostly in the GI system, right? Uh, especially the upper GI system, and that's where octreotide plays a role. So octreotide is a somatostatin analog. If you're uh, uh, if you don't deal with with GI a lot, you're probably a drug probably not a drug you're you're really familiar with because you just don't see it all that lot. What I usually tell my students is that a good way to think of octreotide is that it basically is the off switch because it's it's, it's somatostatin it's, it's a it's somatostatin it's, it's a hormone your body already makes that basically shuts off everything in the GI tract so basically it shuts down blood supply it shuts down secretions it's it shuts down uh, production of acid in the stomach all those sort of things so basically kind of it's kind of the light switched off on, on on all those things and then as it's decreasing blood flow to those uh, uh, ver, uh the esophagus and stomach there's going to be just less blood in there for 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 the, for the patient to lose basically so um, the guidelines do recommend and octreotide as, as an, an initial intravenous bolus of 50 micrograms, and then you usually will start a drip at 50 mics an hour uh, for anywhere in the guidelines, say for two to five days. Uh, something I've seen in my hospital that I always kind of uh, worry about is is that is that um, octreotide is not cheap, and sometimes we'll just start octreotide and just let it go and keep going and going and going and going on it, and um, the guidelines do point out that, that, that once the patients maintain hemostasis for, for several hours, it's probably reasonable to, to, to stop. It. And so they say, you know, may stop after definitive hemostasis is achieved. So, you know, do you really need to continue octreotide for three to five days? And that's that's kind of standard. in a lot of the physicians I've, I've worked with, um, I think I think the, the guidelines would suggest no. That that if you do are able to get good banding in there and get definitive treatment, maybe as little as 24 hours of octreotide is all that's needed. And I think it's going to really save some money for the patient, which is really really nice. Uh, octreotide is a relatively safe medication, and really the only weirdo side effect that I've seen um, from it. Or over the years has is, is been bradycardia so you uh, and you will see that occasionally so do keep an eye out for the heart rate in these patients who are on our drips drips um, uh, often and this is the other big bugaboo that, uh, that's always kind of stuck in my craw a little bit um, in, in dealing with these patients is that you know we have a patient who has known cirrhosis and they have uh, uh, they're throwing a blood and so we think it's probably esophageal uh, uh, variceal bleeding or gastric uh, variceal bleeding but it could just be regular GI bleed so we start the patient on both a proton Pump inhibitor drip, like a uh, pantoprazole drip, and an octreotype drip, and that's a, that's in my world. That's a pretty common, you know, one-two punch you're going to see in, in in these patients that I uh, that is ordered for these patients. And I think it's worth noting, and the guidelines uh, say it's worth noting that that somatostatin analogs don't forget again they turn off everything, so they also turn off gastric acid secretion in the stomach. And so because they inhabit gastric acid secretion, co-administration of proton pump inhibitors is not required. And I want to repeat that again because. That's something that I think uh, many of my colleagues in, in in inpatient pharmacy, you know, struggle with. Is well, you know, they're on a protonics drip and some and, and, and an octreotide drip, and you know, they really need to be on both drips. And I think, uh, thankfully, the AGA guidelines now really give us, a, a, you know, a, a a level to stand on to say, you know, we don't need to continue proton pump inhibitors as long as the patient is on octreotide. I think that's that's pretty important because uh, it's obviously costly. It has its own side effects associated with it, and when I think it it, it would people kind of forget about somatostatin, again is that is that it works very nicely to, to inhibit gastric acid secretion, and that's all proton pump inhibitors are doing as well. So, um, that t- t- I was very gratified to see that in the guidelines because because again I think that's an issue I deal with all the time um, and unnecessary use of, of proton pump inhibitors in these patients. So very good to see um, some other issues they. Talk Talk about in, in the uh, uh, guidelines versus antibiotic prophylaxis, uh, um, one of the most feared uh, problems associated with cirrhosis is something called spontaneous bacterial peritonitis or SBP. Many of you are, are pretty comfortable and familiar with this and we know that patients who have gi bleeds are at very high risk of going on to develop sbp and so the guidelines are very clear in this set of guidelines and previous guidelines as well have basically said that you need to put the patient on prophylactic antibiotics which has been shown to reduce infections has been shown to reduce re- bleeding and most importantly been shown to reduce mortality uh, with the absence of cef- cefotaxime it's very difficult to get now in the united states almost everybody has gone to ceftriaxone and that's what they basically recommend is, is in this case the ceftriaxone uh, one gram a day. Uh, they say maximal duration seven days. I've I've usually recommended I, I think based on some of the other set of guidelines five days, and I think that's probably reasonable to do. If you did have a patient who was like unbelievably allergic to cephalosporins, and they pretty much have to be unbelievably allergic just to just to cephalosporins, uh, you could probably use a quinolone in this in this case would we'll probably cover most of the same things that ceftriaxone would cover. But really, a, a third generation cephalosporin is really your treatment's of choice. Um, and remember, you know, and this we can always. Do another uh, another game changer in this down the road. Uh, that just because somebody's allergic to penicillin does not mean they can't get later generation cephalosporins. I don't really care how allergic to penicillin they supposedly are. Uh, even if they're anaphylactically allergic to penicillin, uh, the risk of them developing a reaction to ceftriaxone is less than one percent. I feel very comfortable giving those patients a third and fourth generation cephalosporin. So ceftriaxone for five days is definitely the next thing you want to talk about. Transfusion goals are always a little bit up in the air, but but the, they do tr- say that, that that in most cases the good transfusion threshold is seven and that's certainly what we've been doing in my hospital for many many years um and and trying to target a maintenance of kind of seven to nine we do not want to get these guys to 13 14 15 uh, because every unit of blood we give them is, is, you know increases the the chances that uh, uh they're gonna get antigens or problems down the road where we won't be able to give them blood or it's gonna be more difficult to type blood for them and stuff so uh they they, they know they note in the guidelines that that a a, a conservative transfusion uh, policy is associated with a favorable effect on uh, 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 portal pressures uh, and and uh, decreases risk for early bleeding as well. The other and final issue we'll quick, we'll quick talk about here is 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 coagulation in these patients because their liver has been shot. Um, often uh, their INR and their PT are elevated, right? And for many years I was always taught, and you may have well been taught as well, that you know that these people were auto That be that they even though they weren't anywhere near warfarin, their INRs were two, two and a half, three, and and they were at very high high risk of bleeding. And, but then in the 1990s and in 2000s, some studies came out that suggested that the opposite was true. Suggested that no, actually, if, if you take a look at these patients who were admitted to the hospital with cirrhosis and high um, INRs, uh, they were they were actually more likely to develop DVTs than controls were. And so that was one of those really big paradoxes that that for a long time we kind of we kind of sh- scratched our head about and said, well, that doesn't make any sense. If their INR is elevated, how could they be at increased risk of of, of clotting? And what the new guidelines and to, uh, the AGA guidelines point out is is that uh, to basically to, to make it a too long didn't read sort of thing, uh, the INR and PT is. Basically useless in assessing a level of uh, or, 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 or if the patient is, is hyper or hypocoagulable in these patients. That basically it doesn't mean anything one way or the other. If it's high or low, it really doesn't mean anything. And so this guideline and and, and the uh, ACG guidelines from last year uh, that, uh, that talk about uh, chronic liver disease both point out the fact that 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 uh, basing therapies uh, uh, or you know based on on somebody's high INR just doesn't make a lot. Of sense because that high INR is not uh, uh, correlated with them either, more being more likely to be bleed or being less likely to bleed, and so you know even I think the the old um, uh, paradigm was certainly to hammer these guys with a lot of, of fresh frozen plasma, hammer these guys with a lot of vitamin K, you know, and trying to get those get those INR numbers down to, to you know on the thought that that would make the person less likely to bleed, and I think the the, the reality is is those numbers really don't have any correlation with that. And we also know now that there are some, some studies in the last five or uh, years or so that have come out that suggested that fresh and plasma, which has a significant amount of volume associated with it, may actually lead to increase portal pressures and may actually worsen outcomes and so uh, you know the thought of giving a couple of units of fresh rose and plasma to these patients because their inr is high uh, not only doesn't seem to be helpful but in fact may actually be harmful in these patients and so they do recommend that 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 uh, tr- uh using fresh rose and plasma simply to fix a number in these patients is 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 probably not beneficial and, and shouldn't be done um they 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 point out that they're at this point that we don't have a lot of good literature to, to say how we do fix uh, uh, bleeding issues in these patients or how we assess level of coagulation in these patients. Um, I, you know, uh, For many years, I would see my physicians give vitamin K to these patients. It was not something I was certainly going to resign and protest for, but you know, even as a young pharmacist, that never made a lot of sense to me. The, the, never, I never thought these guys weren't eating enough vitamin K. I thought it was that their liver couldn't translate vitamin K into, into vitamin K-dependent clotting factors. I'm certainly not going to you know, stop if somebody wants to give a single dose of vitamin K, but it's probably, unless the patient is profoundly vitamin K deficient, which some of these patients may be, I, I don't really see it really helping patients. So we have, in my hospital, we're trying to adopt uh, these these guidelines and, and the ACG guidelines, which point out that, that if there is a relatively easy lab to check that might be beneficial to assess coagulation, in these patients might be fibrinogen. Um, we know that low levels of fibrinogen have been associated with increased bleeding in, in, in critically ill patients with cirrhosis, um, and so it, it's the if someone had a really, really low fiber engine level, that might be your at currently one of the best markers we, we can have to assess that, oh, okay, this person really is at high risk of bleed and we probably should give them some factors back rather than giving, um, um, uh, a fresh rose and plasma and its volume. Uh, the ACG guidelines point out that, that, that uh, cryoprecipitate might be the way to go. And, and that's what we've really kind of moved to. I think in my hospital in the last six months or so is trying to use more cryoprecipitate and less fresh rose and plasma in these patients because the volume is so much less it's pricey. That's something that you have to think about. But, but, but I, I I think that that that's, it's probably overall safer for the patient than than the volume associated with, with fresh frozen plasma. In hospitals that that are lucky enough to have th- thromboelastography testing or testing like Rotem testing, uh, there's some evidence suggesting that might be a good way to assess hyper or hypocoagulable states of patients, but many, many hospitals don't have the, the equipment to do that. We do at Methodist because we're a level one trauma center, but, but many, many uh, hospitals, especially community hospitals, just don't have uh, the capabilities to do thromboelastography. So, phyparigen- might be the simplest test that the average lab can pull off to get this done. So, um, so really, some 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 important issues when you deal with variceal bleeds that are really kind of changing uh, the standard of care um, and certainly how I've seen a uh, esophageal bleed being treated in, in my 30 years as a pharmacist. So, interesting read, and uh, we will follow up and conclude about talking about some of the summary about this in just a second. But first, a word from our uh, sponsors or and producers, CE Impact. So another uh, another one for the hospital pharmacist this week. There's nothing wrong with that, I don't think. Um, uh, um, but this is something that I've seen again many, many times in in, in my career. Uh, it, it's a very serious issue, and uh, it can be deadly. And so it's nice to see a set of guidelines, look at the latest l- the latest uh, evidence, and kind of put that into in a pretty easy to implement uh, guidelines. I think again, if if you take anything away from 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 this uh, podcast and the guidelines themselves, which we will have a link to in the show notes, uh, is that, you know, octreotide is still a great drug to be using in the United States. If you're one of the people who are maybe listening, not from the United States and outside the United States, turlopressin is used uh, in this in this situation, but we don't have that in the U.S. So octreotide is, is is the vasoactive drug that you're going to be using that you probably don't need to continue va- uh, octreotide on and on and on and on that once you've you've maintained hemostasis for, for a period of time, it's reasonable to stop the, the octreotide drip. Watch out for bradycardia in those patients that while they're on octreotide, they do not need to be on proton pump inhibitors, even if you think the patient might have, oh, they might have another GI bleed or something. You know, remember that somatostat analogs inhibit gastric acid like proton pump inhibitors do, probably more effectively than proton pump inhibitors do. We need uh, antibiotic prophylaxis with ceftriaxone for, for, in my opinion, at least five days. Uh, red cell uh, transfusion uh, threshold should be about seven, and a conservative uh, transfusion threshold is a good idea. And finally, don't worry about their INR, don't look at their INR and go, oh my goodness, our INR is three, we gotta do something, that INR means nothing. And 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 I have to admit, I've had to train myself to do that in the last six months or eight months or so, is don't worry about the INR, and say let's get a fibrinogen, and if fibrinogen is really low, and the patient's actively bleeding, that that cry precipitate might be the way to go in these patients, and try to avoid using things like uh, uh, fresh frozen plasma and tons of vitamin K and stuff like that because it it just may, it may not be beneficial. So that's it for this week of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. Thank you again for listening. Again, head over to where you uh, listen to them. Hit that like button, can subscribe, spread the word, let your uh, uh, other colleagues know that this is going on. We are working to try and get uh, CE for more um, uh, healthcare professionals, but certainly the pharmacists head over to CE Impact, uh, take a look at their great packages, not just us, but other really, really good packages. A lot of stuff on the COVID vaccine and how how you can set things up for that. I think some really good stuff there, lots of other things. So uh, it really can be a one-stop shop for you for your your CE plans for for your next two years. Uh, We will catch you next week, but until then, remember time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We'll see you next week.